Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. So have you mastered death yet? Welcome to episode number 62. Today I'm talking to Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., the author of The Five Levels of Attachment, The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships, and The Mastery of Self. We're going to really dive in and talk about what it was like for him to grow up as an apprentice to his grandmother and famous father, Don Miguel Ruiz Sr., We're going to talk about that time as a young man when his father told him, you need to go master death in order to learn how to live. We'll talk about the day that he started seeing life as is and broke the illusion. We're going to discover what his favorite meditation is. We'll also talk about his explanation of the Toltec wisdom tradition, his personal definition of the four agreements, and of course, he's going to detail and break down the five levels of attachment. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., thank you for coming on the Inner Peace Podcast. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ruiz. How's everything with you? Everything is great. Your story is so fascinating to me. I read that when you were a younger teenager, uh, you were an apprentice for your dad and your grandmother who obviously are, you know, part of the Toltec wisdom tradition. Mm -hmm. What did you learn at that early age? A lot of things. Um, You can say that my grandmother was always the spiritual uh, figurehead of the family. Ever since I was, all my life, she was always a master. So my father was her apprentice for many years. So I remember Dr. Miguel Ruiz. I remember Apprentice Miguel Ruiz. And I know Dr. Uh, Don Miguel Ruiz. Yeah. But uh, mostly it was love. You know, you can say that I grew up in juxtapositions, in contrast. I, I lived in San Diego, California, but I went to school in Tijuana, Mexico. I, uh, there was spirituality in my house, house. Yet I started... I studied the International Baccalaureate and I studied very much academics and mm. studied at University of California, San Diego. My father is a medical doctor. My uncle's a medical doctor. My aunt is a psychiatrist. My uncle's an oncologist. My mom is a dentist. There's a lot of Western medicine doctors in my yeah. family. And then you have my grandmother who's a spiritual healer, a faith healer, and my grandfather as well. So I grew up with two languages, English and Spanish. I learned how to navigate Tijuana. I learned how to navigate in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the, the jinx of it. You know, it's the, the, the thing that allowed me to understand the world. You know, my father and my uncles would have patients and they would send them to my grandmother Sarita for faith healing. And in turn, my grandmother would have some of her patients and she sent them over to my uncles and my father so they can heal them. And my point of view, it's like, it wasn't a narrow uh, perception. It has to be this way. It has to be that way. 
right. all instruments are, in, are available to us if we are able to recognize what instruments we need. So at that point, we don't discriminate based on the ideology or preferences. Humanity has created all these beautiful traditions that allows us to heal from the wounds that conditional love left in our heart, as well as to heal physically and mentally and emotionally. So mm. for me, that is one of the essence I've learned from watching the interaction of my family, but mostly love. You know, we loved each other. You know, I paid attention to my grandmother because I loved her. I paid attention to my father because I loved him. They bombarded me with a lot of information and a lot of it is very useful. Some of it is not relevant to my life and some of them I just don't remember. And there's things that I very, very much remember. So it's one of those things that I engage in the apprenticeship because I like spending time with my family. So to me, that's the main lesson. When you were old enough, did your dad tell you to go master death? They're becoming alive? Yes. Yeah. At the, at the very top of the pyramid of the sun, uh, I was 24 years old, 2020, exactly 20 years ago, roughly around this time, uh, June or July. And uh, it was at the apex of a journey. My father always held back during my apprenticeship when I was at school. So this was the first trip I had gone to when I was not a student. I graduated the year prior. And he really pushed me and mm. I learned quite a bit. I, I was able to let go of a lot of filters. So when he said that to me, it's a moment where you realize that growing up, you had death as your biggest fear, but it turns out that the biggest fear is life. Right, right. So having a confidence in yourself to make a choice and to respect yourself to experience those consequences. Mm. It's nobody else's fault. I'm the one who said yes. So you can say that at that moment, I, my father really pushed and taught me for the first time in my life, you can say. And then came coming home, I had to reconstruct the whole thing, reconstruct mm. the whole dream. And little by little, I thought I was still up here, but little by little, I just came crashing down, complete crash. Mm. And I started all over again. And that was intense, but looking back on it, very beautiful. I lost someone I loved very much mm. and my father had a massive heart attack and the mm. bubble that I created for myself burst and at that moment that's when that lesson really came alive it's it's it, this is my life how do I want to live it how do I want to engage it right so that was for me the what happened in that summer of 2000 yeah 2000 yeah it, usually you hear of stories of a dad like I don't know, teaching their kid how to farm or, you know, get into the family carpentry business or whatever it is, right? And he's telling you, master death. <laughs> but you know, in a way, it's the same thing. You know, same, it's, same concept, it's, right? Yeah, it's, it's my, my grandmother practiced the tradition. My father practiced it. My grandmother's father, Don Leonardo, practiced it. My great-grandfather, Don Ezequiel, practiced it. We all rebelled against the tradition and eventually life found a way for us to learn. Yeah, and anyone on the spiritual path knows that, you know, death, you know, has to become your best friend. It's a it's a part of life and you know, that's probably the most important moment we'll ever have in our life is that last moment. And 
if we can master that, then we learn how to live. Well, it's, 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 it's the moment where you realize that we only go back to where all our ancestors go, have gone before. Mm. And it's a moment where you realize that everything is precious. It's the thing that makes you accept that one day I will not be animating this body, that I won't be animating this mind. Mm-hmm. Thus, what we have is this moment. So what am I going to do? Am I going to waste the rest of my life worried about a moment that's going to come? Or, or am I going to use and enjoy this moment? It's, it's a moment where I accept not only my mortality, but the mortality of everyone in my life. Mm-hmm. And also accept that every relationship ends. So if we already accept that every relationship ends, why are we going to waste our time for a moment that's going to come? I'm going to enjoy when life is saying yes to me at this very moment. Mm-hmm. And that moment, not only do we conquer death, we come to peace with it, which is really what conquering is. We're conquering our fear and whatever projection we have of it. And that's what we master. We master our own fear of it. Right. Right. I love how you use the word animate because this is where the term animal comes from animal animate animal animate just a little gem there for the listeners we are animated aren't we if you go back 20 years ago like you said that's a little bit after your your father's famous book came out the four agreements three years after yeah that book really took off in the spiritual community when did you realize like oh my dad is you know, a player in this game, so to speak. When I first read the book in 1997, I read two chapters and I put the book down. It was my dad telling me what to do all over again. And I didn't pick it up again. I was in 1997, I was 21 years old and I didn't pick it up again until I was 27, 28 years old. Ah. So at that moment, it's when I started really applying it in my life. It's when I really started engaging it. So I think it was more 27. So at that moment, my father was, I don't know. It's like, it never really hit me that he was a player in all this until, until his heart attack, really, because at that moment he was in the, uh, his, he had already been with Oprah and uh, in the form that they talked about him in this book, uh, Ellen DeGeneres and my Oprah talked about him. Mm-hmm. But my father never really held himself in that way. Like, even to this very day, you know, we don't really act like we like, uh, it's just we, we give, we, we have an opportunity to work. You know, when I, when I release a book and it hits number one, whatever, I just see it as my opportunity to continue to work. There's some, something my father always approached it. You know, it's, it's one of those things that we know that people project onto us whatever they want to project and it's our temptation to believe it Mm. so for us we're just living our life we have an opportunity to share our tradition with other people and using control folly we know the projection that people project of us is not the truth and if i believe it then i'm going to use that image to domesticate myself with it and that was you can say that a problem I had when I was younger, I really believed in those images. You can say that I used the four agreements as the four conditions and I used it to domesticate myself, pretending mm-hmm. to be something I am not. So at that moment, I learned and I became aware that Tommy Miguel Ruiz Jr. doesn't exist. 
I exist. My father in the same way, my brother in the same way. So for us, it's, it's fun to play in that world and it's fun to see the response, you know, when we engage. But every single moment is just an opportunity, an opportunity to share, an opportunity to experience. So yeah, that's, that's how we see it. So for us, you know, we, we know we are a form of celebrity, but a celebrity that we're only celebrities when we hit a stage. As soon as we leave that stage, we're no longer celebrities. Okay. In fact, the book is more popular than us, and that's the way we want it. The right. book always has to be more popular than us. Right. The name for agreements is a very popular title. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When was the first time in your life when you directly experienced the fact that you are not your mind, you are not your body, you are not your story, you're something else? Did you have an experience? June 2000. June, <laughs> July 2000. That's, uh, that, same, that same journey. It's a moment where you can say, if I'm going to use spiritual terms, I'm going to use them. Um, my, I shifted my assemblage point, and all of a sudden, every filter went away for a brief moment in time, and I saw life as is. And what came, the crashing down of that image came not at that moment, but months, months later, when I came back, when I came back home and I went to live in Berkeley again, and little by little, I felt everything fall apart in the sense that that image of who I thought I was doesn't exist. And that's when I realized, you know, that I had that moment where that image of myself was just an illusion. Mm. So, but it started with that moment. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to see is that you reach a certain moment, a moment of clarity, a moment of whatever. You experience life as is, and it's beautiful. And then you think you're there yet, you think that you're automatic, that you don't have to do any more work. But it's not true. Life will always throw a curveball. Life will go, always go up in cycles. And that's where you realize that you're always changing. As soon as you define yourself with a, an identity or a symbol or a name, that name no longer represents you because it's no longer representing the truth. So when you realize that, that I don't need to find myself through an identity with a definition, I can know myself through the experience of being me. I'm always changing. I'm always shifting. I'm always living life. And that's what makes me change. You know, right now I'm 44 years old. In a few months, I'll be 45 years old. Uh, right now we're going through all this thing that's happening in the world. And at, at, on the other side, I'll be a different person because I've ex I will experience life in a totally different way. I know that because I'm already a different person from where I was at the beginning of this year. Mm. and so on and so forth. So I'm always changing. So if I try to hold on to an image of who I was, what it is, well, that's when suffering happens because I'm holding on to what is known, what I'm holding on to the past, and the past is no longer the truth because life no longer lives in the past. Right. It makes it in the moment. Right. Were you doing a lot of meditation back then? or? No, my meditation is running. Um, I run marathons and half marathons and oh wow 
around mile three or mile four, I enjoy the feeling when my mind surrenders and all that exists is my body, my, my breath, my, of course, the, the cars, of course, because you have to pay attention to the cars. Yeah. But it is the moment where I stop thinking of what I'm doing and I know what I'm doing. Some people might call it the runner's high. Some people call it being present or the zone. Mm. But for me, that's my favorite meditation, which is to run. Very cool. Now, nowadays, I've added kickboxing to that. I enjoy, <laughs> I, I enjoy the feeling of my movement, of my right. body. At the end of the day, it comes down. It comes down to the centering the mind, anyway. So meditation could be anything. It's being present. Meditation could be drinking tea, like in Zen tradition, right? And enjoying every flavor, all the aroma, and being present for that flow. There was once. Uh, <laughs> I'm going back to uh, a discourse I heard from Osho one time, and this is in the '70s, and. A decide, or someone was asking a question and they're like, I think I'm sitting because I smoke cigarettes and this, that, and the other. And he says, well, you're not, he says, well, you're hurting your body, but just be present. If you're going to do it, be present. Make a corner in your room and have a little smoking shrine if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you be present doing your bad quote unquote thing, just be present. Mm -hmm. And, and if we adapt that to everything in life, then we can meditate when we're working. We can meditate when we're uh, swimming, when we're creating art, when we're singing, when we're in the shower, when we're holding our beloved's hand, we, when we're even watching TV. You know, when we're completely in this very moment where our mind is not in the past or in using our memory. Right. Or we're not in the future using our imagination. We're at this present moment where silence is perceiving. You know, the function in our tradition, the function of the mind is to dream. To dream is to perceive and to project. So I perceive 360 degrees around me with my eyes, with my ears, with every single nerve ending that surrounds my body. But at the same time, as you're hearing me, I'm projecting right now. I'm filling my diaphragm with air, letting it, the air go through my trachea, through the vocal cords in my throat, to make through the muscles in my mouth to make sounds in English. I am projecting what I'm perceiving in my mind. But at the same time, that which I perceive in my mind is also a projection, every single thought I have. So let's imagine you're reading a book. Each paragraph represents a thought. And of course, there's chapters representing a different stage you may be in your own story. Hmm. But each paragraph represents a thought you have. Now, at the end of a thought or end of a paragraph, there's a period. Heather Ashamara, my dear friend, uses that when you have a thought and you don't, you're not liking it, be able to put a period at the end to end the thought and redirect your attention. That's beautiful. That's nice. Mm. So here's the thing. There's a space in the paragraph between that last period and the first capital letter. That first capital represents the beginning of the next thought. So at that period, you can either continue to that next paragraph, continue to the chapter, or you can just shift and start a whole new chapter. But here's the thing. The space 
between the thoughts is actual perception. It's called silence. When I'm no longer projecting onto the world my narration, my explanation, my knowledge, I am perceiving. I'm perceiving the world around me. In order to perceive, it requires me not to project. Mm -hmm. So I can be in the middle of Manhattan. I can be in the middle of Mexico City or Tokyo or any loud, boisterous capital, huge city, and there will be silence because you learn to elongate that space between thoughts. And in that silence, one, you don't get in the way of yourself, but you get to listen and hear what's around you. You can call this awareness. You're aware of your environment. And as you are aware of your environment, you know how to engage that environment. Well, you can also do that within yourself. All of a sudden, stop the story of who you are and get to experience what it feels like to be in your body without the need to describe it, without the need to narrate it, without the need to encapsulate it in a, in a symbol with a definition, a concept. You just are. And in that silence, you can be in anything. So kind of like Osha was describing, you would take that corner of that cigarette and you be present, which means enjoy the experience of that which you're perceiving without a judgment coming in to narrate or describe it. Yeah. And that, because if you do that, you're no longer really present. You're paying attention to your mind. And when that happens, well, then you're completely in your mind. You're completely in your own creation. Mm. Well put. Isn't it interesting or fun even how the basics of spirituality and liberation is really the same in all these different traditions you know there might be there might be some differences but the, the the core basics are the same thing all around whether it's teachings from jesus or buddha or lao Tzu or your father osho it's like the basics the core basics are the, are the same tell me about the toltec tradition because some people may not be familiar with it it's an ancient south american tradition mexican tradition been around you know centuries ago right mm -hmm. can you explain more to the listeners what the toltec tradition is the word Toltec is a Nahuatl word that means artist in English. In fact, Toltec or Tolteca, Spanish or in English, it's just a Nahuatl adaptation of the word artist. If I translate the phrase, the Toltec art of transformation into 100% English, it means the artist path of transformation. I am an artist and the canvas for my work of art is my life. And the instruments I'm going to use to create that work of art it's going to be my body, it's going to be my mind, it's going to be my will, my intent. I can create the most perfect nightmare, I can create the most perfect harmonious dream. Mm. That's what, when I say I'm a Toltec, I'm actually saying I'm an artist. Mm. 
as a civilization, it ceased to exist over 500 years ago, either with the expansion of the Aztec Empire or the Spanish Empire, which means at that moment it became an oral tradition. Now people in Mexico and South, Southeast United States, the desert, uh, many traditions there have Toltecs, which means it was not just a civilization, but every community in Mesoamerica had Toltecs, as well as all around the world. When, when you adapt and translate the word, every single community has artists. And that's where the oral tradition comes from, in our tradition. It's like, there are people in Mexico that practice it exactly as it was 500 years ago, hmm. because it was taught from generation to generation. Then there's people like my family that adapts it with each generation. If I quote my grandmother, Sarita, if you practice the Totec tradition the way I or your father do, you're killing the tradition. You put into practice all that you've learned and life becomes your teacher with the consequences of the choices you make. And from learning from those consequences, you will use your own words to describe them. That's how, she says, that's how I'll know if you describe verbatim the four agreements, for example, and I'll know you haven't really applied it. You've done a good job reading the book, mm. but you haven't really applied it. So you start applying it. And for example, after some time, I've learned that being impeccable with the word, the word is an empty symbol whose definition is subject to agreement. Every word we use in our vocabulary is an empty symbol whose definition is subject to agreement. Mm. But a word has a meaning because we define it with our intent. So be impeccable with your intent because it's your intent that gives power to the word. The same energy you use to move your legs, to move your arms, is the same energy we use to create a thought. And at the root of every belief we have in our belief system, there's a yes that gives it power. That's what we know as intent or will. So be impeccable with your intent. And I remember saying this to my father and he says, good, that's exactly what I meant, Miguel, but since you changed it, let me change it one more time be impeccable with yourself mm. because it is you who's given power to your word. Another mm. example would be don't believe your assumptions because I realized that an assumption is a, pro a, a missing piece of information or a projection of a story that I project onto life. For example, my favorite instrument that I like to use to describe what the uh, make an assumption is, is the Gestalt principle of closure. The Gestalt principle of closure says if you draw a circle and you don't close it, the mind has the capacity to project that missing part. If you draw two sides of a triangle, but you don't draw that third line, the mind has capacity to project that, that third line. Hmm. They use it in abstract thought, a thought in psychology, in many other things, in, in literature is called reading between the lines. That missing part, the reason why we project onto it is that the mind needs to know when we don't have all the information we do our best to fill in the missing gap so what we do there is that we want to see the world in some way we will project all a certain what if onto what we know and it makes us think that we know the whole but it's just our story so don't make assumptions basically means don't project your story onto the world when you don't have the full information. Applying that in my life, well then let me adapt it. 
don't believe your assumption because it's easy to know. In order to use an assumption with discipline is to always know that it's my creation. I created it. When I forget that I created it, it's because I want to believe it. So I believe it. Right. And what's dangerous about that is that I take action. Once I take action, there's consequences that may reflect life or may not. And, you know, you got to ask yourself how many of my emotional wounds were created because I made an assumption out of a situation. So because of that, I changed it to don't believe your assumption. Don't take things personal. For example, for me, it took me a long time to realize that I do take things personal. So I adapted it to realize that to not take things personal is to not assume responsibility for someone else's will. That I am only responsible to the tips of my fingers. And that is what not taking things personal is. I don't assume responsibility for someone else's will nor someone else's perception. I am only responsible for my own. I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for how I perceive life. Now, everything I just shared is me applying what I learned from my father and my grandmother and applied it in a way that resonates with me. Right. Otherwise, I could have just repeated everything verbatim like a parakeet, but it doesn't mean that I actually know what I'm talking about. Right. I'm very much a good reader. But once you actually apply it, then all of a sudden the lessons really begin to unfold because they stop being conceptual and they start being practical. And that's the whole point of the book, a practical guide to your own personal freedom. Right. It sure is nice and simplified. One of your famous books, the five levels of attachment. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're so attached to so many things, aren't we? And so your, your book really breaks this down. Can you describe briefly what the five levels are? My grandmother, during my apprenticeship with her, asked me a question. Do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? That's something my grandmother used to say over and over again, and she would adapt it in different ways. She would say, are you drinking the bottle or is the bottle drinking you? Or stuff like that. <laughs> right. When I was 14 years old, I had no idea what that meant. It just went over my head. So as I got older, <laughs> I began to understand these concepts. And I was able to answer the question, as I realized in different stages of my awareness or different levels of my own attachment. And attachment is investing of yourself emotionally or energetically or intellectually onto something that's not a part of you, but you make it a part of you through that emotional investment. Mm. That's what an attachment is. Now, mind you, an attachment is healthy. It's a healthy thing. We attach ourselves or we can say we engage a moment or someone or something, what makes it unhealthy is that when the time comes to let go, we can't. Mm. Because we've, we've, we've attached ourselves so much to it in a sense of who we are that we are afraid to let it go. So with that, let's imagine a lotus flower called awareness. Mm. Let's imagine this flower completely open. Level one, the authentic self. The answer to my grandmother's question is, I am aware that I am alive. Regardless of what knowledge I have or what I think, I am aware that I am this authentic self. And I'm only using the word authentic self 
only to describe to someone this awareness of being alive. I am the force that animates this body, that animates this mind. And I'm aware of that. My body, my mind, is my creation. Without me, this body does not exist. Mm. So for as long as I am in this body, this body, this mind, is animated. Level two, preference. Let's imagine a flower that engages a moment, closing just briefly. And when the moment is over, it opens up again. So open and close, open and close. A, pul a pulsating flower engaging with moments. In New York, it might pulsate really fast. And up in here in the mountains, it might go a little slow. So the answer to my grandma's question is, I am aware of my authentic self and I will use knowledge as an instrument by which I navigate the world. It is an instrument that allows me to, to inform my choices, but I'm the one making a choice. So at this very moment, I'm the youngest I will ever be. I'm the sum of every decision that I've ever made, but at the same time, I'm the youngest I will ever be. I have my whole life to live. I'm the infinite possibility. Mm. And because I can go in any direction in life, whichever path I prefer that I say yes to, that is my preference. That's why this levels preference. And when the moment is over, I'm able to disengage. Level three. Imagine the flower engaging a moment, closing ever so briefly, but when the moment is over, it can't open up. It mm. stays there. The answer to my grandmother's question is knowledge and I are one. One of the best ways to attach ourselves to something is to identify ourselves with it. Because in life, everything flows, everything moves. You know, nothing in life stays, but the only way it can stay is if we make it a part of us. And the easiest way to do that is to identify ourselves with it. Or mm. you can say, we give ourselves an identity and we give ourselves a definition of that identity. Right. We begin to see ourselves as a word. That's impeccable with the word, right? Right. So knowledge and I are one. The one condition that the dream of the planet has, society, community, is that I need to know who you are. In order for me to know who you are, that allows me to relate to you. I know where you're coming from. It's, remember what we said. The mind needs to know. So an identity is a beautiful thing from this point of view. It's a, it's a thing that allows me to honor my ancestors, to honor my preferences, to honor my culture, to honor the things in my life that bring me joy. Right. And it allows me to break the ice, finding other people who relate to the same likes. You know, We mm. enjoy this, we enjoy that. We like this kind of music. We like the Peshmo, the Curious Smiths. If I say that, some people who hear that will say, yes, I like them too. Some people who are like, well, who are they? Well, you know, that's our identities will be a little different there. But that's the beauty of an identity. It's, it can be a bridge that allows us to create relationships. Now, mind you, up to this point, level one, level two, and level three, I'm experiencing love as is. Mm. I can respect life as anyone. If I'm a vegan, I can sit down next to someone who's uh, Atkins and we can enjoy a dinner together. Right. If I'm 
a Toltec, I can sit next to a Deepak Chopra, and then we can enjoy each other's company. Right. If you know you're a Christian, you can sit down with someone who's Muslim or Buddhist, and you'll enjoy each other's company. Right. It's not an instrument of division. It's just an instrument to identify our relationship. Going back to what you were saying before, you know, all these beautiful traditions, the teachings of Jesus, Buddha, Siddhartha, they all have this common common thread because when we put it into language, we're putting into language our communion with the divinity. And we will use the words that surround our environment to give it such a such experience. For example, if you go to yoga and you at first you start cranking your neck to look at the, what the teacher is doing. You're doing the moves where you're hurting your neck because you want to see what the teacher is doing. But after some time, you don't crank your neck to look up because you already know what certain sounds mean or what certain words mean that you will do it. Downward dog, mm. uh, uh, sun warrior, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, and then you, you start focusing on the movement and then one point you stop thinking about it and you use your breath and all of a sudden out of nowhere your breath allows you to have an experience similar to what you have in breath work but it's coming with movements and you have a communion with the divine with mm. divinity and you when you come out of it you're going to use the words of yoga to describe it right so at that point identity level three it's our attachment to the need to know, to the need to identify. The mind needs to know. That's the whole purpose of knowledge. Knowledge and I are one. Level four, internalization. Mm. Once we have an identity, it's actually a slippery slope. Uh, we can begin to use it as an instrument or a model by which I domesticate myself. For example, in my case, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., in order to be worthy of love, I have to live up to this image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. If I need to know the four agreements, take things personal, don't make assumptions, always do your best. <gasps> I forgot one, which one is it? Oh no. And I begin to a diatribe judgment, punishing myself for not knowing this idea, <laughs> this concept of how can I call myself a Toltec if I don't know this one agreement in my father's book right. that's supposed to be ancient and all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, the judgment comes in, and at that moment, the telltale sign that I corrupted the four agreements by using it to domesticate myself is judging myself for taking things personal, judging myself for making an assumption, judging myself for the rest of it. At that moment, I've corrupted the four agreements and turned it into the four conditions of our personal freedom. Mm. At that moment, I use these teachings to domesticate myself to this image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. It is where domestication, a system of reward and punishment by which we model an individual comes in, which means is the way we begin to love ourselves conditionally. At this point, a vegan won't share a plate or a table with an Atkins. Right. We're going to be judging each other we're, uh, and religion as well. We're going to be creating a division because the answer to my grandmother's question here is that Knowledge gives me the rules by which I love myself and others. Mm. So at that moment, this is where I begin to love myself conditionally. And that's when everything becomes corrupted. Level five, fanaticism. Hmm. The answer to my grandma's question is 
knowledge has complete and total control of who I am. It's the moment where I don't see myself as the authentic self. I actually see myself through an identity. I am the personification of an idea that's more important than my life. And if it's more important than my life, it's definitely more important than yours. It is the moment where I no longer see your humanity just because I'm not even, even able to see my own humanity. So the answer to my grandma's question is knowledge and I, sorry, knowledge has complete control of me. So at level four, level five, imagine that lotus flower called awareness closing ever so tightly to the point where all the petals become filters that distort all my perception and I don't see life as is. I only see what I want to see. Hmm. Well put. So you have children. When do you start passing this stuff down to them? At what age? Whenever they're interested, if they're ever interested. Yeah. Will you just hand them a book? I mean, you got between you, your brother, your dad, you, you could hand them a library. Well, we had them books and with sign, you know, we've, we've signed them and give it to them like more of like a, like a little present to them. Like, all right, this is my book. I, I give it to you. Like, <laughs> kind of like, that's the present we've given them. But what we understand is what more matters most is that one day, if they ever do decide, they're going to open it. Right. And if they open it, they might answer questions. And at that point, we'll answer them. So at this very moment, yes, we've given them books. But it was more as a gift, kind of saying, this is, uh, I wrote this book, I've signed it for you, here it is. And yeah. it'll become her lesson and his lesson when they decide to actually read it. Because that's what I did. Right. My dad gave me his book, I opened, I read it for two chapters. <laughs> and it was my dad telling me what to do. Right. Again. So I, I don't... I don't want to listen to him right now. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, growing up, it's a filter. You know, when people ask me what it's like to grow up with my father, with my grandmother, even with my father, you know, it's, he, was my, he, was, he was there for me. He enjoyed, you know, we had a lot of fun. He was my, uh, he was my disciplinarian. He gave me advice. He got me out of trouble. He got me into trouble. He did all these great things, and it was phenomenal, you know, so... For me, you know, it was, it's normal. That's when, when, you, when, when you asked me, like, when did it hit me that he was a, a big hitter or whatever, um, it's kind of hard for me to say, yes, I recognize that he is popular or that kind of thing. Uh, but for us, when we're around, man, we just talk, you know, we, we mostly talk sports. We talk, right. uh, he, we talk movies, we talk about the family, we talk about all these things. We rarely talk about teachings, you know, it's, it's, it's all about our, our, our relationship with what common, common ground we have and we share that common ground. Right. Uh, so, right. you know, for my kids, you know, they, my wife, uh, she grew up Mormon. I grew up Catholic. I grew up, you know, with the Totec tradition. That's part of the object of position that I grew up Catholic. I went, I had my first communion and my catechism and all that kind of good stuff. My wife grew up Mormon. So in our house, the fusion of those three traditions are pretty much intertwined. Wow. When we go to Utah, we, we pray, we cross our arms and we do our prayer, we close our eyes and we do the prayer. We, we, we let Howard uh, lead us in the prayer. 
or whichever elder is there at the table. At my home, we do a, you know, a, a, we cross our head and our chest. We do the sign of the cross mm-hmm. and we say, thank you, God. And we start eating, you know, and then those kind of things, you know, I, I, I just, I mentioned the superficial stuff, but my wife and I kept what we resonates with us and we let go of a lot of stuff that doesn't. Okay. And my wife and I, the way we see it is that we created a whole new culture. Right. When when will they choose the religion? When will they choose the total tradition? That is up to them. And yeah. it's completely their choice. Sure. Sure. So you have another book, The Seven Secrets to a Healthy, Happy Relationship. So it sounds like you got this thing worked out. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of traditions there. You're 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 mixing in and, and, and making it making it work, making it happen. What would be another tip for someone? I mean, you got seven of them here. Whenever a couple comes up to me, ask me for advice, I always ask the same question. Do you guys want to stay together? If they both say yes, the rest is easy. Because that yes is the motivator by which we cross thresholds. When both of them say no, that's also easy because they're both saying their truth. The relationship has gone its course. It's difficult when one says yes and the other one says no. At that moment, you're trying to convince someone else to change their yes into a no. Mm. But that's the thing. Every relationship exists for as long as two people say yes to that relationship. As soon as one changes that yes into a no, that relationship ceases to exist, which means all relationship exists for as long as two people say yes to one another with that free will. You know, my wife... She's my wife is not my best friend. She's my wife. And what I mean by that is that out of 7.5 billion people living life in this planet at this very moment, maybe closer to 8 billion. Mm. She's the one who's saying yes. And our yes has taken us to such a deep level of intimacy with one another that we've created so much together. You know, she, we, I've completely opened up to her and she's opened up to me. So that's what I mean by my wife. It's not a power struggle or anything like that. It's just an honor, you know, a, a word that describes this mutual respect for one another. Mm. But my wife is only with me because she wants to be with me. At any given moment, she can change that yes to a no. My wedding ring only means something for as long as we both say I do. But at any given moment, she can change that yes into a no. If I do something stupid or she goes in different ways in life, she's completely free to do anything she wants. She is free to say yes to the things she wants she wants to say yes to and no to the things she wants to say no to. To respect her is to respect her no just as much as her yes because her no is just as powerful as her yes. Mm. And that's true because I can't give what I do not have. In order to give that respect to her, it starts with myself, respecting my own no just as much as my own yes. Right. When the expression goes, to love someone, set them free, that means let them be in their own free will. And with that freedom, knowing that they can go in any direction she wants, that she is only here because she wants to be, that's great. Because I want to be with her too. We're both saying yes at the same time. And that's what makes that relationship great. Yes, Mm. hurdles will come. You know, a relationship that doesn't have that yes so strong, you know, when the first hurdle comes, 
you'll break up. So you're dating. It's a relationship that you, you had a mutual attraction, but the yes wasn't strong enough to survive those first hurdles. If the yes is strong enough, you're able to survive a few other hurdles and you're in a long committed relationship. But eventually you're going to hit that one hurdle that changes that yes into a no. My wife and I have been together for 16 years. And we've gone through a lot. We've learned how to argue with one another. We've learned to go through all those hurdles. For example, my grandfather used to say, if you're about, if you're about to put your foot in your mouth, button your lip. <laughs> if you already put your foot in your mouth, button your lip even harder. <laughs> so when I was younger, even with my relationship with my wife in our early years, we would get into arguments and as couples know, you know, eventually you get to know each other so well that you know which points to touch that will create some pain, but more importantly, win you the argument. So we always go down to that place. So at one point, I'm hearing myself, I'm about to say that stupid thing and something stupid is basically something that's going to hurt her. I don't have the discipline to stop myself. So what I did, I walked away. When, she first started, when I first started doing that, she would follow me and boom, there was the argument, right? <laughs> but one day I said, honey, love, I'm walking away because I'm about to say something stupid and I don't want to say it. And basically, I don't want to hurt you. She, she says, well, to me, when you walk away, it sounds like you're not taking me, you're not taking me seriously, that you're, not, you're taking me for granted. I said, no, honey, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going away because I don't want to say something stupid that's going to make things worse and I can't stop myself from saying it, so I'm walking away. Mm. She says, I hear you, I hear you, and I understand, so let's make this promise. Walk away, but once you diffuse, come back and re-engage the conversation. Mm. And it worked. When we came back, what happened is that just as I was about to explode emotionally, I was able to calm down. And what happens when you calm down, your defenses go down. And part of defense is that you don't listen. When you're defending yourself, you stop listening. So when the emotion comes down, your defenses come down, and all of a sudden the channel of communication is once again open. So after 16 years of being together, we're able to talk about finances. We're, talking about, we're able to talk about raising children, um, holidays, and all these things, and realize that it has nothing to do with our relationship. When we disagree in finances, it has nothing to do with us. Mm. So little by little, we were able to talk apples to apples, oranges to oranges, and we weren't crossing the hairs because at one point, that's what we were doing. We thought that if we disagreed financially, that you don't respect me, and, this, and it just got convoluted. We clean the channels of communication. And what allowed us to clean those channels is that mutual love for one another to, you know what, this is worth the effort. This relationship is worth the effort. So it's one of those things that in my life, I've had the opportunity to heal a lot of those wounds that would trigger me to react. You know, she gave, when I wrote this book, The, Five, uh, the Seven Secrets of Happy, Healthy Relationships, uh, I just finished healing my relationship with my first love, my high school sweetheart. And my wife gave me such a benefit of the doubt and gave me a lot of respect that allowed me to heal my relationship with my ex. And when she and I healed each other's wounds, 
the person who benefited was not just she and I, but my wife and her husband. You know, all of a sudden that old wound is no longer there to fester and contaminate my presence because that wound was healed. So it's one of those things that when couples ask me about advice, once again, I say, do you guys want to stay together? If they both say yes, mm -hmm. the rest is easy because that motivator is there to get you through some of the hardest stuff. And what about if someone just wants to be single? <laughs> that's also true. Yeah. That's the way it goes. You know, that's, it's, it's one of those things that you learn. It's like, don't get a, don't get a cat if you want a dog. Don't get a dog if you want a cat. <laughs> be honest with what you want. Yeah. And always give the person a choice. Most of the time, if you say it from the point, I just want to be single. If you say it out front, you know, if the people who don't want to be single will say goodbye. But people who are like, you know what? I want to be single too. And, you know, let's just have fun. That's how you do it. You know, you like a player lies. Right. Someone who's honest. Honesty, yeah. Always comes true and says, this is what I want. This is what I want to experience. If you're okay with it, let's continue. If you're not okay with it, thank you so much. We respect that person's truth, which is their no. Right, right. And so, you know, when we come to this realization that we're not our mind and we're not our body, we're not our story, we're not our identifications, mm -hmm. then, you know, we realize that we're in this animated mm -hmm. material world and we're on this journey and you are on this journey with another person mm -hmm. and some little people. It's an interesting dynamic. You know, they say, a lot of masters say, stay in the marketplace. Don't go to the Himalayan mountains, right? Mm -hmm. don't, don't go to a monastery. Stay in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. When you're married with kids, that's another layer on top of mm -hmm. staying in the marketplace. Yeah, because it's your reality. It's your present. You know, if you're going to the Himalayas, you're trying to adapt someone else's path. Find your own path. Find, stay in the marketplace. Stay in your family. You know, Siddhartha left his wife and kid, and he, he did it knowing that his wife and child will be okay. Why? Because Siddhartha was advocating, releasing, letting go of his crown mm. he's claimed the crown he mm -hmm. was a prince that's right he lets go of that crown the next in line is his son yeah but when siddhartha leaves his wife and son is because he knew that he was they will be protected but then you read you know someone who like Kar karak and and the beat generation that wanted to apply that well they left their wife and son but they weren't being taken care of you know they, they they made a decision that was true for someone else's life but it wasn't true for their own right so it's it's always you have to be present what is your desire what is your choice for me i was working in the film industry for 10 years and i let it go because i didn't want to be the kind of father that was not there because when you're in the film industry Every job is your last job. So you're always saying yes to every job, which means I wasn't going to be around. And I want to be a man who's, who's a father and a husband that's around. So mm -hmm. for me, this is the joy. Right now, 
coronavirus is happening and we're not working as much as we were before, but I'm really busy. And that's because I've got two kids and I'm doing my very best to helping them. You know, it's like they're stuck in the house, whatever. We go out here and there, but, you know, they're 15 and 13, which are, you know, it's like, you got teenagers. <laughs> you got teenagers, which means they were going to be in the room anyways. You know, yes, getting right. them out of the house. Yeah. Now I understand all those people. Says, yeah. I'm just trying to get them out of the house. <laughs> now, now I totally understand. Right. You know, it's like I'm totally on the other side of that that equation. You know. Right. It's like, for example, it's like, okay, here, here's a good one. It's like Peter Pan. When I was a kid, Peter Pan was a hero. Hmm. He took. Wendy and the boys to Neverland and brought them back. And they showed them all this time. I want to be a lost boy. I want to be a lost boy too. And you grow up with that. And then you hit the teenage years and you stop believing in fairies. You stop believing in Peter Pan. Then you fall in love. You have kids and you can't wait to introduce them to Peter Pan. And all of a sudden, your perception of Peter Pan changes again because first it was a hero. Then you're like, eh, he's lame. Then, hey, let me introduce you. Then you watch him and then you realize, wait a minute. Peter Pan is a villain. He's going to take my kids away. Mm. Yes, close that window because I don't want him to take them away. Right. He's going to kidnap my kids. Get him, mean. Get him hooked. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you understand Captain Hook, and all of a sudden, you can relate to him. <laughs> right, right. And that's because now you're seeing it from the point of view of a parent. You can follow and learn from someone else's path, but it's not your path, it's theirs. Apply it in your life and see what resonates. You know, right. Siddhartha's choice made sense for him. It may not have been a good one for someone else because, you know, that's what happens. What is good for you? What is the life you want to lead? What is the journey you want to experience? Because here's the thing, you're not going to live through anyone else's point of view. You're not, not gonna know what life is from someone else's body or mind. You know it from you. Mm. This is you. Are you gonna be afraid to live life as you? Or are you gonna embrace it? And usually the thing that stops us from enjoying our life from, from our point of view is that someone told us once again, or someone down the line, that we're not worthy of that love, that we're not worthy of that thing. Look at the way I look, look at the way I have, look at the color of my skin. If we believe that, then that's what stops me from enjoying life. And that's what stops from being present in this body, in this mind. So it becomes a singular journey because it is my own journey that I'm healing. I have your brother, Don Jose, coming on the show in a few weeks. Anything I should ask him? <laughs> oh, ask him about the, the drum lesson. The drum lesson? Yeah. Something when, something when you were kids? No, no, it's uh, him as an adult. But <laughs> it's a good lesson. And ask, and ask him about, about playing music with a bird. How cool is it to have, you know family going on you know on this journey together even though you said you guys don't really talk about the teachings and stuff but you're you're on the path 
at the same time it's it's, it's like three well, birds talking you know chirping in the, the tree we talk about it in a presentation so we hear each other when we're doing presentations you know right. we get to hear the new stuff and the process stuff and the story and the ahas and all that kind of thing and it's like we, I get to know my brother and my father in different aspects. That part is fun. And then touring with my brother is fun. It's, it's, it's like being a teenage kid again, like going on <laughs> looking for record, record stores and coffee shops and things like that. That part is fun. You know, it's like driving around and, uh, and me driving because I like to drive and I seldomly let go of the steering wheel except for a night because I can't see at night. So I give it the, begrudgingly I give it the keys to my brother and I've learned to do that. <laughs> one of the nice things is like I got sick once in one of these tours and my brother took care of me and that was a beautiful thing you know it's like I'm so used to taking care of everyone that it was nice to feel that my my brother took care of me and mm. that was a nice memory that was in when we were in Portland Maine well, that's got to be a good thing because you know being sick sucks being sick on the road sucks even more you know, very vulnerable state to be sick when you're out, out and about. Yeah, yeah, and and it gets it, it's it's a little daunting, you know. But he took care of me, and that was beautiful, you know. Yeah, and you've been here to the Hartford, Connecticut before, right? Yes, yes, I've been. We've been to Hartford, Connecticut. One of our favorite. Oh, that's another good question you could talk about. One of our favorite places to go is the. Mark Twain's house. We, we, uh, we've, we've done all the tours with like, you know, with the actors. We've done, we've done the butler. We've done the, uh, the, the minister, the reverend meaning. We, and we've done, uh, we, haven't have, we haven't had one yet with, uh, with the wife or the daughter, but it, it, they're phenomenal. Yeah, Mark Twain is the most famous person that ever come out of Hartford. And uh, I've been in that house. There's an energy in that house. <laughs> Oh God! When we're upstairs in that in the billiard room, and then we realize that's where he wrote Huckleberry Finn, you go, oh, "This is the space where Huckleberry Finn." My dad and my brother, like all three of us, when we were in that room, all three of us at the same time, when we all three of us got to hit with that realization, we're in the room where Huckleberry Finn was written. Oh. Yeah, but not only that, you were also in the room where Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla used to play pool. Oh, nice. And you know, I'm a big Tesla guy. I, that guy was just amazing. And, and Mark Twain is amazing too. And just to have those two amazing uh, uh, personalities and figures in that, yeah. in that room. That would have been a phenomenal, like, like listening to that conversation, you know, be a fly on the wall on that one. I got to get you back out here to Hartford once the uh, pandemic's over. Yeah, yeah. Well, we like it over there, and we we need to see more of the actors and the the tour. Yeah, we really enjoy it. And then Chris Grosso, our dear friend, lives there too. Yeah, he was just on the podcast. Yeah, how's Chris? Chris is good. Chris is good. We had a we had a good conversation. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Grosso is an awesome guy. Yeah, his episode just came out two weeks ago. This see how everything syncs right up. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Someone just got killed by a shark there. Yeah, I just read about that. That's horrible. Great white shark. Something you don't hear every day in Maine. 
Yeah, I know. And, and every, that's the worst part because now that you have that and people are going to have all this fear and anger and just start killing sharks for no reason. I bet you she, she was in the present moment. May she rest in peace. You know what, though? That, that's an interesting topic, though. For, for somebody to come across a shark and get killed by this animal, that, that's something that doesn't happen to people very often, right? No, no it's so, so rare. What, how does that equate to somebody's journey? Wrong place, wrong time? Just a random... Yeah, let, let a moment be a moment. You know, we can create a thousand stories out of one thing. I remember sitting, I was in Santa Monica when an elderly man hit the accelerator instead of the, of the brake and plowed through a farmer's market. Mm. And it was the first time I ever seen bodies uh, laying about on the street. You know, there's a body on top of the car, there's a body beneath the car. Oh. And the whole mob was going to try to get this older man and they were saying, and I watched it, you know, my dad, my dad was there and he says, pushed me out, like, oh, learn. You look at all these people and everything, and then you hear everyone around you and everyone's telling you, saying a different story. They're all on the phone saying a different story. Mm. The same event, a thousand stories, and all true to the person who's telling the story. So we see what we want to see. We distort what we want to see. So an event happened. This young lady, this woman, happened to be in a place that the journey ended. And she's not the only human who's that happened to. Everyone goes through a moment where tragedy happens and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sure. But if we want to give it meaning, we like to give it to them. And we create meaning and we give it all this definition. It's what we call spin. In the news cycle, they call it spinning. Right. And that's why it makes us so divided. You know, people are spinning a news to make the fit their narrative, their, narrative, their bias or whatnot. But all that happened is just, it's a tragedy in the sense that a young woman's life was lost. You know, tragedy in the sense that eventually more sharks are going to die from it if they go after them. But it's something to be careful of. But it's depending on the story we give it. We can narrate it. And here's the thing. As soon as we start narrating the story, it stops being about this young woman. And it starts being about us who are telling the story. Because now we're telling our impact of it. I remember seeing a YouTube video where this gentleman was talking about how he was a surfer and he got attacked by a shark, great white. And obviously he survived because he's telling the story and he was given the play-by-play and he was saying that while he was in the shark's mouth, he remembered surrendering and coming to a place of calm. Inside of a shark's mouth. Wow. And I was like, yeah, man, that's it right there, you know? And I, he survived, obviously, but he was ready to die and he was cool with it. He surrendered, you know, his spirituality at its finest right there, just yeah. surrendering to his final moment. 
underwater inside of a shark's mouth. And that's the thing. You never know. You never know when that moment comes and where you're going to be at. You know, you never know. One, like what my grandma used to say, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. <laughs> you know, you can, you, you, can, you can try your best to plan for something, but life will always have its own plan. So this little shark story, you know, sort of correlates with earlier on, about an hour ago, when we talked about your dad mm-hmm. telling you to go master death. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? The surrender? The yeah. surrender of the moment? Yeah. Because you never know what's going to happen. You know it's coming, and you know, don't know when it comes. So don't take things for granted and enjoy life saying yes to me at this very moment. And what better way to, to end this conversation than surrendering to death? Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on your program. And uh, hope you have a lot of fun, Dr. Reese. Thank you very much. We're going we're gonna to get you out here in Hartford when, when we can. It'll be fun. I enjoy, I enjoy being over there. I, like, I love running in front of the Capitol building. It's one of the most beautiful Capitol buildings I've seen. <laughs> well, Hartford doesn't have much, but we got Mark Twain and we got a nice Capitol building. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. I mean, what a conversation, right? Definitely go to DonMiguelRuizJr.com to check out his work or just look him up on Amazon. I'm looking forward to talking to his brother and eventually his father as well on this podcast. Be sure to message me through the website or my social media and let me know what you thought of this talk I had with Don Miguel. And be sure to share and like and do all that good stuff that keeps this flowing and reaching more and more people. Don't forget, my meditation album and podcast are both available on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and more. If you're looking for my work, go to drreese.com. That's doctor spelled out. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.